Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Catholic Connect Podcast. I'm so glad that you joined us here. I hope you're having a fantastic and blessed day wherever you may be in the Universal Church. Well, this time in our lives and in our culture and in the world, a time of crisis, a time of a lot of confusion in the world, a lot of division in the world, a lot of falsehoods. And of course, the devil, we expect no less from the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning. But you know what? This is a time for us as Catholics and people of goodwill to rise up. It's a special time in the world, and we don't have very much time in this world. And as we record this, we're around the Lenten season, but this is something and a mindset that we need to have 365 days of the year. The brevity of life, how short our time is on earth, and but we still have enough time to make a difference for Jesus Christ, to grow in holiness or to die trying at the end of the day. That's all that really matters. And I pulled up this little brief quote from St. Gerard Magella, and uh, and here's how it goes. Quote, consider the shortness of time, the length of eternity, and reflect how everything here below comes to an end and passes by. End quote. And St. Gerard, a fantastic saint, he is the patron of expectant mothers, uh, another great patron of children, those who are falsely accused, and also he's the patron saint of a good confession. We talk about that all the time here on this podcast. And uh, take it to heart. Ask for the intercession and the assistance, first of the Blessed Virgin Mary, then your guardian angel, and then pick some saints that will help you. I always pick St. Padre Pio, uh, St. John Bosco, and now St. Gerard Magella. Maybe a good pick for some of your children too because he's also the patron of young children. Well, I know we've got a lot of big sports fans out there, and I would consider myself one as well. You often hear that term, playing with a sense of urgency. And I think in the Catholic Church today, we need to start living our lives with more of a sense of urgency. We see the issues in the church. We see the issues in the world. But we ultimately know that the answer is Jesus Christ. And I'm so excited to chat with Eric Sammons from Crisis Magazine, a great apostolate that I encourage all of our listeners to follow and read their great work online. Uh, They're doing a lot of great work for the Catholic Church and bringing a lot of issues to light that we need to be aware of. So I was so thankful that Eric dropped by to talk about the last 10 years of Pope Francis, where we've been at in the church, where we are today, and most importantly, where we're heading. So without further ado, here's Eric Sammons from Crisis Magazine. We'll see you on the other side of the interview, my friends. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Well, Eric Sammons is the executive director of Crisis Publications and the editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine, as well as the author of several books, including his latest called Deadly Indifference. He also has a fantastic podcast called Crisis Point. Most importantly, he is a family man and our brother in Christ. Welcome, Eric Sammons, to the Great White North and the Catholic Connect podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh, while we're recording this, it's 70 degrees where I am, so it doesn't Uh-oh. feel like Canada to me. <laughs> and we should just point out really quick that we go on, on Celsius here in uh, in Canada, so 70 degrees Celsius would be uh, would be beyond hot. So I think uh, probably if we converted that, Eric, that'd probably be about plus, uh, I don't know, maybe plus 16 or 17 degrees. I can tell you right now where I am, it is below zero at Celsius. So I'd say it's probably about 20 or 25 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, but it, this, uh, is, this is very odd for, I'm in Ohio. This is very odd. Right. Uh, like we've had, you know, normally this time of year, we should be in the 20s or 30s uh, Fahrenheit. So around zero um, Celsius. But for some reason, we're getting this warm spot. My, one of my youngest daughter, she came down today and she had shorts and a t-shirt on. I'm like, boy, you are ready. Wow. Day after Valentine's Day, you're like ready for summer already. <laughs> and you know what? Now with the, the Columbus Blue Jackets is a hockey team in Ohio. We kind of look at Ohio as a hockey state now. I'm sure it's more of a, a college football state than anything and maybe NFL as well. But uh, but yeah, I would figure in February, you probably this is definitely unseasonal weather for sure. And also to bring in the Canadian connection just a little bit more. I actually, my family went to a hockey game recently, the uh, university where I went to Miami university, my wife and I went there, there, it's only about a half hour from our house. And we went up there and uh, we, we caught a hockey game a few weeks. We haven't, the kids had never been to one, the little kid, all the kids who are home right now had never been to one before. So that was exciting. And that's Although Miami of Ohio, right? A lot of people Correct. don't realize there's a Miami in in Ohio yes. as well, at least a right. university, right? Well, that's great. Well, one day, Eric, you, you told me offline that you went to Windsor and uh, God bless the people in Windsor. I think we have some listeners around that area too, but uh, hopefully you can experience a little bit more of Canada. If we'd love to have you out here in Alberta 
BC, come visit the mountains. And yeah, for a while there, hockey game. Yeah, for a while there, I want I kind of wanted to go up, but of course with the lockdowns and everything, it was yeah, like it just yeah. Yeah, I just took it off the 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 idea table, you know, for a while. So hopefully, we can get back to actually leaving the country and coming back in. <laughs> Oh, for sure. And uh, I'll, I'll leave because uh, we could talk sports all day. You told me you're a baseball fan too. But uh, if you have a, a few minutes of spare time with your kids, put Connor McDavid highlight reels. He's our, our uh, star center here in Edmonton. He's a lot of fun to watch. If you're not even a hockey fan, uh, he's a fun guy to watch and gives you an appreciation for the game for sure. Good to know. You mentioned uh, lockdowns and, uh, you know, Eric, I, I, I don't know, I've, I've, I've threatened or promised, I don't know, probably more of a threat to some of our guests that we could do a Joe Rogan style podcast of three or four hours. And I'm sure if we get into that topic alone, we could probably uh, hit that mark without any problem. But uh, I just listened to your, your podcast that you released uh, yesterday as we record this, it would have been February 14th. And uh, it was really well worth a listen for anybody if you want to just sort of see the state of the church and, um, you know, how we've performed as a church here in the last couple of years. It, it hasn't been anywhere near close to adequate. And, uh, you know, I think we can kind of tie that into to leadership, even at a higher level and uh, how we, we should have done. But maybe we can we can start with um, with uh, with Crisis Magazine itself, Eric. I know you're a convert to the faith and uh, you got a, a great story on Journey Home, another uh, favorite uh, program on EW10 that a lot of our listeners uh, tune into as well. And uh, we'll make sure we post that. But uh, do you want to give us maybe just a, a bit of a Coles Notes version of, of your journey to the church and how you ended up with your apostolate at Crisis Magazine now? Yeah, sure. So essentially, I grew up, uh, my parents, my whole family, United Methodist. And we, by high school, I, was, I would consider myself more of an evangelical Protestant, which is just a term for somebody who doesn't really care too much about the denomination they're in. They're mo- more focused on just the what we would consider the fundamentals of, of Protestantism, of Christianity, and uh, very much wanted to share that with others. That's the term evangelical. And so when I went off to college at Miami of Ohio, uh, I, I was, like I said, evangelical Protestant. I, I, I kind of flitted around the various churches in, in the town, trying to find one that I thought would fit. The United you know, Methodist in the area was way too, like, just very old and, and kind of dead. And so I was looking for more dynamic, you know, college-age type of uh, places. And then, but I got involved. The big thing that that changed, frankly, my life trajectory was when I got decided to get involved with the pro-life group. Uh, I was pro-life and, you know, I mean, I would vote. It, was, it wasn't that important to me, but I was like, yeah, I'm pro-life. Uh, and then I decided to join the pro-life group, got very involved with that. And we were very, this was the early nineties. So a lot of activism, we would go, uh, go and pray and counsel abortion clinics. We would get sit in front of them and get arrested, uh, all the stuff that was going on back then. And I was the only Protestant in the group that was really active. I mean, there was a lot of people in the group, some were Protestants, but of the core group of about a dozen, eight to a dozen people, everybody was Catholic except for me. And so I had a lot of interaction with Catholics, and these were Catholics who were on fire for their faith, and particularly one my who ended up being my roommate. He was very much on fire for his faith, very much wanted to—I mean, he explicitly wanted me to convert, and he made no uh, secret of that. And so, like I said, we, we roomed together, and we would have big arguments and even fights, basically, over Protestant <laughs> versus Catholic, and uh, ultimately— I, I like to say I won a few of the battles, but he won the war, <laughs> which I'm very yeah. glad that he did. And so I, it's actually this Easter will be uh, 30 years since I came oh, into the praise church. Praise God. And oh, so, so good. Yeah, it was just it was the best thing that's ever happened. And so mm. um, I'm very I'm very grateful. Although I, I work for a magazine, run a magazine that's focused on the crisis in the church in the world, I I would never I don't regret for even a, a split second becoming Catholic. I'm very glad I did. And so then, basically, after that, I went through a lot of different things in my career. I was a computer programmer for a while. I worked. I, I got a master's degree in theology. I ended up working for a diocese as a director of evangelization for five years. Uh, I worked for myself a lot of times doing writing and editing. I've written a number of books. And so then finally, uh, about two years, ago, a little bit over two years ago, um, Crisis was uh, looking for a, a new editor, and they reached out to me, and I thought, hey, this sounds great and so that's what i've been doing for the past two years oh that's fantastic that's so good 
Um, maybe a quick question about uh, about your conversion too. So when you have someone that, because uh, you don't hear very often that, you know, this, we have some Catholics here that are really aggressive and they really were trying to, to bring someone into the church. You know, usually it's uh, it's uh, maybe the example of, of the, the saints or the example of somebody else or maybe just doing study on the early church father scripture, running into the catechism, things like that. But what does that mean, I guess, and what, how do you envision evangelization today amongst Catholics? Uh, do you think that that aggressive approach is something that works? Or I guess maybe it's something that we'd have to look at as an individual basis. But what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, well, I will say, um, uh, shameless self-promotion, I did write a book about this, The Old Evangelization. Sure. And, and so essentially, though, it's a good question. And I think what I feel like in general is that Catholics, we, we confine evangelization to a very narrow uh, strip and say, you have to do it like this. And if you don't do it like this, it won't work. Mm-hmm. But I think that's very, that, that, that is too confining. So we, we like, everybody loves to quote the, the fake St. Francis quote of uh, preach gospel yeah. always when, when, uh, when necessary use words. He never said mm-hmm. that. It goes completely mm-hmm. against his whole life and everything he mm-hmm. did. And it's nonsense. And so, but the idea is all we care about is we have to uh, do actions and it doesn't really matter. We don't really have to say anything. In fact, I just saw recently a bishop, I can't remember which one it was, talking about this. And he was saying like, he was downplaying the use of words, really, you know, talking about action. And he was kind of saying it like people use words. I'm like, nobody uses words is the problem. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it, it is always case by case, first of all. It is always based on relationships in general. Like, I'm, I'm very much uh, a, a fan of like St. Paul uh, street evangelization, which goes and sits on, like will set up a table on a street corner, hand out rosary, stuff like that. They obviously don't have a deep relationship with the people they talk to, but what they're doing is they're evangelizing, but they're trying to get like a touch there. That's mm-hmm. just a, a meaning like some connection to the Catholic Church. They see a rosary, they, they may talk to them a few minutes. They're, they know that they're not going to necessarily bring somebody in the church at that moment. I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit could make that happen, but generally that's not what they're there for. They're there to give a positive quick presentation of Catholicism to somebody on the street. But in general, most evangelization is very much one-on-one. And so it, and it's based on relationships. Now, my my roommate in college, my friend, he and I had a good relationship. He knew me. He knew my personality. He knew he could be aggressive with me, and I wouldn't take offense to it. And so it was very effective to, to do that with me, to, to basically be explicit, like, I want you to convert Catholicism. And he would bring up on a weekly, if not more, basis certain things about why Protestantism was wrong or why Catholicism was right. And he knew he could do that because, again, we had a relationship. Now, if mm-hmm. he tried the exact same methodology with somebody else, it might have failed miserably. It might have been a terrible way to go about it. So I think is like I, I see a lot of people— when they talk about evangelization, when they, unfortunately, not if people do talk about it, when Catholic kind of influencers and, and leaders talk about it, I do feel like they're too much like you have to do it this way. And, I'm, and I say, no, there isn't one way to do it. You build that relationship, and then you let the Holy Spirit guide you, and your actual methodology is going to depend on the situation. What is, what is, like, is the person an atheist? Is, are they a former Catholic? Do they hate the Church? I mean, even as extreme as... Is this somebody who was abused by a Catholic priest one in their past? Yes. Obviously, your methodology in, in talking to that person is going to be radically different than somebody like me who was a, a, a devout Christian and had no negative uh, thoughts of the Catholic Church. So I think it really depends on a, it's a case by case situation. For sure. What is the saying? I think it's uh, no one cares about what you know until they know how much you care. Right, so right. Maybe exactly. that, that ties into the, uh, the the personal touch and making those uh, those relationships. No, that's a great advice, Eric, for sure. So, knowing that you've been in the church now for for thirty years, I mean, you've seen the last three popes that we've had, and uh, Pope John Paul II was my pope for so many years. I think I was, I think I was twenty four or twenty five when he passed away. And I felt like he was never going to die, Eric. <laughs> and there was a lot of, uh, but it's like Queen me, Elizabeth, a, right? That's right. <laughs> Just yeah, the coin just never changes, right? And then when it does change, what do we do? You know, it's a it's an interesting question. But um, but I had a great love for, for Pope John Paul II. Uh, uh, there was um, obviously no man is perfect. Um, praise God, he's, he's been declared a saint. He's done, did a lot of great things. But I want to take you to that date of February eleventh, twenty thirteen. 
And that was the date that Pope Benedict the 16th announced that he would be resigning the office at the end of that month. And I remember that morning, of course, things happen in the middle of the night in the Vatican uh, where we live, right, Eric? So uh, wake up and, you know, you get these, these texts and calls from my colleagues and family. And I'm like, okay, somebody died and, uh, looked at it and then, you know, seeing the news, it really was very jarring for me to see something like that, something you would not expect. So it wasn't a death in some ways, but it kind of felt like a death, Eric, in some ways it was really, really strange. And that's why when, when Pope Benedict, uh, the 16th did pass away, God rest his soul here right at the end of last year. I had some real odd feelings uh, that went through me because I, I still love Pope Benedict the man. A lot of the, the writings that he had were, were fantastic, really um, inspired me to to get closer to, to Christ. And maybe that's the, the greatest compliment anybody could get. That, uh, that date really set off the next 30 days, something that you know, looking back, it, it seemed really strange. And uh, you and I are probably in a similar position. You know, you're you're a family man, you've got children, you're working, you're trying to earn a living, you want to grow close to Christ, and you want to trust that the Holy Spirit's got it all taken care of here, right? No matter how weird it looks or how strange it looks, but you want to, you just want to say, just take that solace that the Holy Spirit has everything taken care of, and and that certainly is the case, but what were your initial thoughts uh, personally when, when all that went down 10 years ago? Yeah, so let me give a little background of just my own like thoughts about uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. So after I converted, uh, soon after that, I actually entered a master's degree in theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And that's when I was really introduced to Joseph Ratzinger and his writings, his theological writings. A lot of people know of him, of course, through his work at the Vatican as the head of the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith and as Pope, of course. But he was a one of the premier Catholic theologians before all this happened. And so I read, and I had read a lot of 20th century Catholic theologians. That was kind of a focus of the program. And I, I liked a lot of them, but nobody resonated with me more than Ratzinger. I mean, just, mm-hmm. I, I could have read, I, I mean, I, I almost, I actually crossed my mind to try to learn German just so I could read him, all his works and read them in, in his original German. And yeah. so it was just, I, I loved him. I mean, just thought he was the, a great thinker. I mean, just really resonated with me. So then when he became Pope in 2005, I literally was jumping up and down and screaming. My kids thought I had gone crazy. I mean, because they were just like, what the heck is going on? Because I just, you know, you didn't expect him to, he, he wasn't expected to become the Pope um, beforehand. Uh, he had this reputation as this hardline conservative and this terrible, you know, mean person, whatever, which was all nonsense. Um, but he became Pope. So, so to say the least, I was super excited. And as the Pope, I thought he was doing a great job. I I mean, you know, we all can nitpick things, but I thought he was doing a fine job. And so on that morning in February 2013, I'm working for a diocese. And so I'm in the director of evangelization and I'm driving. I get early because I have to drive about an hour or two to this parish I'm going to give a presentation at. And I turn on the radio. It's early in the morning and I hear them say Pope Benedict has resigned. And I thought, and this was just like a regular secular news station. And I thought, well, they got something wrong. That doesn't happen. I, yeah. I literally was like, there's, yeah. there's something, something got messed up and they, they, they mistakenly think he has resigned, but it's really something else. I mean, that's really what I, my first reaction was. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I figured out on the drive, I think I called my wife and said, go look this up on like a Catholic site and find out, mm-hmm. is this, did this really happen? And sure enough, it did. So the funny part is, is that the talk, I got to the talk, and of course, nobody had cared, could care less about what I was going to talk about. And they were like, no, we just want to ask you questions about what the heck does this mean? And I said, I have no idea. I'm like, yeah. I'm, I know I'm like the, the guy with the theology degree. I'm the guy who, who worked for the diocese. I said, but this is, un- I mean, it's not technically unprecedented. Obviously, popes have resigned before, but it had been 800 years. And so just this idea that he would resign, it really, like you said, it was like a death because- and I, I wrote a piece after he died uh, last, you know, a couple months ago now um, that kind of reflect on this. And some people didn't like it because I'm I'm willing to be critical, but it's done out of a, a case of being hurt. Like I really did feel abandoned yeah. uh, because I looked yeah. at him as a father, as a father figure, a spiritual father par excellence. I mean, because I loved him before he was pope. I loved him as pope. And then he says, I can't do this anymore. I don't have the strength to continue. Mm-hmm. I'm stepping down. And I felt like it'd be like if my dad had come to me when I'm like 16, say, you know, it's really hard parenting. I'm I'm going to step aside now. 
I mean, what would you think if you're a kid? I mean, it's like you can't do that. And as a father, as I know you are too, as a father, I can't, you know, I, 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 it's unthinkable to me. And so I know it's not exactly the same. I do know that canonically a pope can resign, and I accept that. Uh, that had happened before, and it will probably happen again someday. But it still felt like an abandonment of a father. Mm -hmm. And so, and I, and I admit freely, I never got over that. I never mm -hmm. really got over that. I, I, to this day, I still feel like that was a, uh, in my opinion, it was a grave mistake that he made, uh, that he really mm -hmm. shouldn't have, have retired. And I know that that's kind of strong language, but I, that's just how I feel about it. And, uh, like I said, it's not, I'm not trying to act like it was an invalid re resignation or anything yeah. in that yeah. silliness. I'm just saying it, it felt like he abandoned the flock. He abandoned his children. And I, I really wish he hadn't <laughs> ultimately. You know, go back to that, uh, when he became the Pope and remember in his speech, he said, uh, pray for me that I don't flee for the wolves right. and uh that was actually the first thing i thought of when i confirmed everything in my head of what was going on that morning yeah and uh he kind of made think maybe maybe i wasn't praying hard enough you know i never even thought of that until then i was like yeah maybe i maybe i'm part of the issue here maybe we just all weren't praying uh yeah. doing I, enough sacrifices to to make this happen so maybe this is just a collective fail on our part yeah no way um, to know how do you think that you know, that, because um, like you said, Eric, he's got amazing volume of works and so much great truth packed in there and uh, really inspires. And, you know, I thought the the nice, the neat thing, I guess, is it's a shame that you got to wait until someone dies sometimes to, to come to an appreciation for someone's writings or works. But it was really nice to see a refreshment from a lot, there's a lot of people online posting some of the great quotes from when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was Pope Benedict and and it reminded you of all the the great things that he did for the church, and, and that he did love the church. But how do you think that 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 uh, that resignation, and how how do you think history will look at Pope Benedict's uh, resignation and his and his papacy? I mean, I think ultimately it's going to be a mixed bag. I'm trying I'm trying to be objective here, not have my personal feelings of of devotion to him that I had, or even the abandonment. But I sure. do think it's going to be looked as as a mixed bag. He obviously wasn't pope that long; he's pope for eight years. Um, so in the great scheme of things, um, he did do a few things that were significant, but not really that many. I mean, I think the creation of the ordinariate, uh, mm. which is the 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 structure in the church for Anglican and Methodist, actually, which is what I I, I was converts that they can come into the church uh, corporately. Obviously, any Anglican can always convert to Catholicism before that. But now what could happen is like a parish, a whole Anglican parish could become Catholic, and there'd be a way they could do that such that they could retain their legitimate Anglican traditions. And so I think that was—I personally think that's probably the number one thing he did Like uh, that will be remembered historically. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, the other major thing he did that we're still in the midst of, we don't know how it's all going to play out, is— his decree that liberalized the celebration of the traditional Latin mass. Right. Uh, before he did that, right. there were, you could have them, but they were very limited and you had to get a lot of different permissions. And he said, no, that's not right. Anybody who, any priest who wants to celebrate should and you know, can celebrate if they want to. And that led to a, a flourishing of the number of traditional Latin masses offered, particularly yes. in America, particularly in uh, France, I think Canada, some, mm -hmm. uh, England, and so that I think that was big. Now, the reason it's hard to look at that one historically is we're right in the midst of Pope Francis rescinding that. Mm. And so in 100 years, how are we going to see that Benedict's role in that? I don't know. Ultimately, I think he's going to be more well known historically as a theologian than he will be as a uh uh, employee of the Vatican, so to speak, as uh, head of the CDF and as as Pope, I think he's actually going to be more known as a theologian, because I think that's where he had the greater impact, in my opinion, is his writings mm -hmm. much more. And right. I think he, that's what he, that's him. That's what he wanted. I mean, he wanted to be a theologian. He wanted to be a professor. He wanted to basically, he had no desire to become a bishop, much less a cardinal, much less the head of the CDF, much less a pope. That's not what he wanted in life. He wanted to be a, a, a professor, a theologian, and he was an excellent one at that. But for some reason, uh, God called him to other things. But I still think historically it's the theologian part that's going to be the most, the most, have the most impact and be the most remembered. Right. So Pope Francis uh, begins his, his the, the papacy, and I remember the first couple of days, I thought maybe this is, this is going to be, this is going to be great. You know, he went and consecrated the, the papacy and his, 
to the the Blessed Virgin Mary. I can't remember the name of the the basilica that he went to in the Vatican, but I thought it was beautiful. They had a lot of pictures of it. I was like, that's this is a what better way to start than going to a dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, then the other things you heard, you know, him paying his hotel bill and all this kind of thing. It was it was great. It was it was cool. And uh, but you know, it, it didn't take very long, Eric. That um, things kind of started going off the rails a little bit. Before I get too far, I want to let people know I love Pope Francis. Uh, how could you not love your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ? And there's a uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of diabolical uh, winds in the world right now that uh, that blow against all of us and, and want to come for our souls. So uh, I do love Pope Francis, but um, you know, over the next couple of years, especially getting up to 2016 and Amoris Laetitia, uh, there was uh, these various you know the infamous airplane interviews, right, Eric, where he'd yeah. get on and. And uh, after the first couple, you're kind of explaining things away. Well, that's not really what he meant to say. Or, you know, I think he meant this. It was a mistranslation. And, uh, you know, there's just, there's getting to be a lot of that. And you're starting to get a little bit tired of keeping, trying to explain uh, what the Pope was saying and, and try to keep it within the uh, the realms of uh, traditional teaching in the church. But uh, was there sort of a, a place that, you know, maybe it was a, uh, one of those airplane trips or one of those interviews or was it something later where Eric Sammons looked and said, something just doesn't seem right here. I think it's start, start to maybe wave the red flags of, uh, we have some problems here, Houston. Yeah. So a few things, first of all, is I, people who know me or follow me at all online know that I am an outspoken critic of Pope Francis, but I do mm-hmm. want to make clear something you did, which is that, uh, he is the Pope. I don't have mm-hmm. any doubt in my mind about that. Uh, and so as the Pope, he, he, he um, deserves a certain level of uh, our, our obedience and our respect of, for the office. Yes. Uh, and, and also, I would say that for those of us who, who kind of know Catholic history, we know there are good popes, there are average popes, and there are bad popes. We've been very fortunate there are very few bad popes, historically speaking. There's 256, yes. I think, there have been. Uh, but there are some doozies. And so if you criticize a pope, you're not, in my mind, you're not undercutting the office. In fact, you're uplifting it and saying that the person who, right. who who fills it needs to step up and fill the shoes that they need to fill, which are big shoes. Mm-hmm. They're fishermen's shoes. They're big shoes. Um, mm-hmm. So all that being said, it's interesting for me because he became pope when I was the director of evangelization at, at a diocese, like I said. And so... I looked at him as kind of like my boss's boss because my boss was the was the bishop and his boss was the pope, mm-hmm. and so I, I obviously not completely the analog, analogous to a corporate world, but still I did kind of look at him like that. So his first encyclical comes out, and it was basically an encyclical by uh, Pope Benedict that he had not finished, and he kind of finished up. So it was fine. There's nothing I didn't. I was like, okay, this is nice. Now he had the the quote where he said, "Who am I to judge?" When talking about uh, homosexual priests and things like that. And I remember I had some blowback. I had to explain that away somewhat because what will happen is working for a diocese, anytime if the Pope says something kind of funny, a little bit weird, they all come to me and they they want to know from me, what does he really mean? Does this mean the church's teachings have changed? And I get, and these are good, you know, just average Catholics in the pews confused by this. And I found myself explaining more and more, but I, I did take the line of just like, okay, maybe he's not very good with the media. Maybe he misspoke, maybe he mistranslate all that. But I will say there was an encyclical, and I, I admit the name of it's now blanking on me, where they, it was like his first one. It's on the evangelization. Um, I can't remember it anyway. Now, the, I was like so excited when I heard this was coming out. I think it was like 2014, around then, maybe 2015. I think it was 2014. And because here it is, my boss's boss giving literal like marching orders for my job because it was on evangelization. And I remember reading it. And I, I just be honest, a, a kind of a bad feeling started growing in me. I don't know anybody else who, who that was their moment was this encyclical, but it was for me because I had, I was literally teaching a class during that time on evangelization. And I, so I was teaching about what Pope Paul the sixth had written, what John Paul the second had written, what Vatican II had said about what different church documents. So I was looking at modern Catholic evangelization from the 1960s on what they were saying. So I was very well versed in that. And then I'm reading what Pope Francis talking about. And honestly, it just, it didn't sit well with me because I felt like it was too emphasized on this material, on this world, not on the spiritual world. It was too much 
kind of buying a lot of the lies of the world and focused on, like it would bring up things like climate change and other political things. And like evangelization really should have almost nothing to do with politics. I mean, there's a role for Catholics involved in politics, don't get me wrong. But when we're talking about bringing somebody to Christ, the, the political sphere it should be very, very low down on the list in my mind of importance. And so just the more I read it, the more I was like, I don't really, I don't think this jibes with with my vision for evangelization, which means nothing. But like even what I saw, JP2, Benedict, even Paul VI, even Vatican II, all these different things, I, it just didn't, it seemed too political to me, too focused on this world. And so that was like the moment where I was like, I don't know about this. But I still was like, okay, I got to give benefit of the doubt because I really did think, you know, obviously you give everybody the benefit of the doubt in charity. St. Thomas Aquinas teaches this very clearly, but especially the Pope. And so I continue to, but I will say when Amoris Laetitia came out, and was that 2016, I think? Yeah, 2016, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I had finally got, and I had so many experiences. I stopped working for the diocese in 2016 as well, and I, I went off to do something else. And But I had so many experiences those three years when I was at the diocese trying to pope explain is what I call it, mm -hmm. trying to explain away what the pope was saying and doing. And I finally just realized that there was this cognitive dissidence in my mind where I was trying to basically believe two contrary things at the same time, which is the idea that the Pope is not saying anything wrong at all. Everything he says is fine because he's the Pope. And then the reality of what he was saying, that he was saying some things that were wrong, particularly, like you said, when he's off the cuff, like in airplane interviews. Mm -hmm. And so it just continued to grow. And finally, I just kind of said in 2016, okay, I can't really square this circle anymore. He's just not doing a very good job in certain aspects in explaining the faith, defending the faith, uh, and, and, and frankly, managing the church. And then I will say, it was 2018, I had kind of a, a bigger break. That's the summer um, Cardinal uh, Theodore McCarrick uh, came out that he was just a horrible monster. And I had actually lived in Washington, D.C. when he was the bishop there, so I knew him. I, not personally. I, I mean, he was my bishop for a little while. And I just, the, those revelations and how high they went, and the reality is that Pope Francis did bring him back into public life mm -hmm. and I did believe um, Arch, uh, uh, Archbishop uh, Vigano uh, that that Francis did know about some of this stuff. And I just kind of saw all of this as a whole, as like just realizing, okay, the crisis in the church, I wasn't for crisis at this point, but the crisis in the church is much deeper than I wanted to admit, and it went mm. much higher. Now, my, my knowledge of history helped me a lot here, because that could lead somebody to leave the church, and I actually know people that that's what happened to them, and I, you know, I mm. pray for them. Mm. But for me, like really being able to, really understanding and studying deeply the history of the church and seeing how bad it was at certain times, the, 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 what's called the pornocracy, which is the 10th century when popes basically were getting poisoned left and right because it was all just controlled by these families, these Italian families, like kind of like a mafia thing. And they were awful people. Uh, there's a pope who was actually elected pope when he was 14, and he resigned two different times. He was pope three right. different times. Uh, obviously, the popes leading up to the, the 16th century and the Protestant Reformation. So I, I, I was willing to say, okay, for some reason the Holy Spirit allows this, probably our mm -hmm. sins. Um, and, and so it's it didn't like it didn't lead to a crisis of faith for me, but it did lead me to say, okay. I'm only one lay guy. What can I do? I have to at least, first of all, keep my own house in order the best I can, pray for my own kids, raise them in the faith. as I Not not the faith as it's frankly being presented often by leaders of the church, but the faith as it's been handed down to us from, for 2,000 years. So a more traditional faith, I was like, I got to focus on that, and I got to help others understand that, because that was the big thing I noticed is when I started speaking out publicly, because for a long time I, I thought these things, but I didn't say anything. When I started speaking out publicly, I had a lot of people contact me, Catholics, devout Catholics, who said, thank you, I feel like I was I was the crazy one. Like, mm -hmm. I really knew mm -hmm. it seemed wrong when he would say this or that, or this bitch would say this or that, but like, I'm like, who am I to say that? I've just, but I'm like, no, you were, your, your, your instincts were good. I mean, if you really do believe, for example, something about the homosexual activity is a sin, you're not crazy to think that. That is the Catholic teaching. And so I had a lot of people thank me, and that kind of made me realize, okay, 
there needs to be some people who are publicly criticizing him, hopefully in a spirit of charity. I, I will be the first to admit, I'm sure there have been times I've crossed the line I don't want to cross. Um, sure. But I try to always keep that the criticism charitable and always focused on, okay, what is the actual teaching of the church? What is the gospel? What is What should the church be proclaiming? Focus on that and help other people focus on that as well. And I think it's important to, to you know know that you're not alone. I think that's part of this, this Marxist cancel culture we have, right? It just intimidates everybody from, you know, it's like the emperor has no clothes. Well, everybody's too afraid to say that, right? It's, uh, it, I guess, you know, what's really frustrating to me, Eric, is that we've already have the deposit of faith and the role of the magisterium is to just continue to pass that along to us. We've right. got the catechism of the Catholic Church. We've got scripture. Nothing is changing. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're just... You know, we're, we're just presenting what's been given to us, the truths of, of Christ that have been presented to us. And, uh, you know, it's the the vigor of how we go and, and evangelize other people. That's the challenge for all of us, right? Um, you know, this uh, Morris Leticia, I think that um, th- that seems to be the horse that these, uh, these uh, German bishops are really riding, right, Eric? And I mean, it's right. not just Germany, but it's some other countries as well. And, and uh, boy, this, you know, the, what we've been seeing here the last couple of years, especially with... Uh, uh, you know, with the with these confusion with gender, and uh, you know, we're seeing these drag queen story hours. Uh, it's all really diabolical, and it's happening so fast, isn't it, Eric? Like it's really happening at a breakneck speed. And you know, sometimes as, as family guys, like you said, you just kind of sit back, and you're like, man, what can I do other than just really protecting my family, uh, immediate family from from this garbage? But uh, I do want to go back to um, Morris Leticia and. German bishops, where we're at right now, and sort of this attack, it seems, on on sexuality in the church and how we should, um, you know, live live a life of virtue. It seems that's really under attack, not only just with married people, but also with priests and the celibacy. Um, yeah, what what are your thoughts on on that, and and why, you know, the crisis in the church seems to be because we don't have that authoritative voice saying, you know, this is this is how God wills it. This is God's view of sexuality. Now we just see the rest of the culture just crumbling all around us because we really don't have that that voice of leadership to to confirm us in our faith, especially in this area. Yeah, so when that encyclical came out, Marcia Leticia, it, all the talk was about the footnote that apparently opened the door for communion for divorced and remarried Catholics. And that's something that has always been forbidden. Uh, Pope John Paul II explicitly forbid it and said it, this was based upon Scripture and tradition. Like, in other words, this can't be changed. And it, it looked like in that one footnote. However, and I'll be honest, I did not want to read that when it first came out. And I just didn't read it because, like, oh, I heard – finally I did get around to reading it. It's far worse than that. It, it, it's That footnote mm. is bad, but it's not even – close to the problem. The problem, and it problem also isn't the teaching on sexuality. The problem is, is that the arguments used in that encyclical undercut traditional Catholic morality. And so mm-hmm. what happens is, is by doing that, it opens up a Pandora's box where anything that was previously considered immoral now can be justified as moral. Now, of course, because of the the sick society we live in, culture we live in, the focus is always on sexuality, like homosexuality or adultery or whatever the case may be. But th- that's not really the attack is is much deeper, much more fundamental. And essentially, it's this. So, in traditional Catholic morality, when you have a a moral act, there are three parts to it that make up the morality of it. You have the act itself. Is the act itself good or bad or neutral. Uh, you have the intention, like why did the person do what they, they're doing? And you have the will, like did they give full consent to doing this? And so let me just give an example, a couple examples. Like for example, if a 14-year-old girl gets pregnant and then her parents basically take her to the abortion clinic to get an abortion, the act itself is evil because an abortion is always evil. And so there is an evil act there. However, like the will of the daughter, like the consent, did she, how much consent did she give? And that can mitigate the guilt of the person. And so, for example, the 14-year-old girl who basically is driven to the clinic by her parents, kind of forced to do it, her guilt is much different than, for example, the, the Hollywood actress who willingly gets an abortion because she wants to further her career and doesn't really care. And so there's, there, there is truth that the guilt of 
moral acts can be mitigated based upon the intentions, based upon, it can be made worse too, based on the intentions, based upon these things. But ultimately, it's always true that the act does matter. And some acts are intrinsically evil, meaning you never can do them. Like that act of abortion is always in every case evil. There's literally no exceptions to that. And there's various acts like that. Uh, uh, an act, a uh, homosexual act is always and everywhere intrinsically evil. There's no exceptions to that. Mm -hmm. But what's happened is, is that they've, they've, when I say they, I mean like the, the, the theologians who are kind of influencing uh, Pope Francis and the Vatican and many of the bishops and cardinals. What they've done is they've tried to use that, that idea of mitigation to talk about the elimination of guilt. That, for example, you could be in a situation. So, for example, let's say a, a homosexual couple, they've been together for decades that they're because of their various reasons, because of the, the the supposed love they have for each other and the stability and all this stuff, that their homosexual acts would be mitigated to a point of even eliminating the guilt. So it wouldn't actually be an evil act anymore. It wouldn't be a sinful act anymore. Mm -hmm. And that flies in the face of 2000 years of Catholic teaching. And it just rejects, frankly. And But they're talking about this as a development, like we're understanding better morality, whatever. And you see that when you can do this, everything is on the table. There's there's no moral act that couldn't be considered potentially not a sin to do it, and you could excuse it. And so, and that's actually why they get to the point where they can say that's kind of the background. Well, how they get to the point to say a divorced and remarried couple could get, um, you know, could receive communion because, of course, they're not going to talk about the. The, the the most likely scenarios, which is some dude leaves his wife, shacks up with another lady and, and starts going to communion. That's the more like and leaves, abandons his kids and all the heartbreak. That's much more common than the stories they will give, which is, OK, a couple gets married very young. They get divorced. And then he let's say the guy marries somebody else. They've been married for 20 years. They have kids. They have a stable relationship, all this stuff. In the eyes of the church, if he didn't get an annulment, he's not married to that second that second situation. He's still married to the first one unless there's an annulment that happens. But what they'll say is, well, look at all this situation. It's a loving relationship. There's, you know, the, the stability, there's this family, all these factors end up making it. So he, it, basically his guilt, the sin is eliminated. And if the sin's eliminated, there's no reason not to go to communion, which is true. If that, mm -hmm. if it was the case, the sin was eliminated, it's not true, but if it was, then yes, you could go to communion, but the church has always said, no, objectively, you can't eliminate the evilness of an act. You can only mitigate, you can only uh, lessen it uh, considerably. Obviously, somebody's forced to do something, then they have no guilt in that situation. Like if the girl was literally taken to, the 14-year-old girl was literally taken to the clinic and she was for forcibly made to get an abortion, mm -hmm. she actually has no sin in that case because mm -hmm. you know she didn't, she gave no consent. But that's not the same as a couple having relations, uh, uh, divorced or remarried, they're they're having they they're giving some level of consent uh, and knowledge of of what they're doing, and so you don't eliminate the sin. You can mitigate it, but you don't eliminate it. I guess that takes us to the next uh, event, and boy, I'm, I'm glad that you had that Catholic friend Eric that uh, was willing to engage with you on uh, areas of evangelization and truce and having those those uh, discussions. Because uh, the synod, as I think it was called the Pan Amazon, the synod of the Pan Amazon region, the Amazonian synod, that was the end of 2019. Boy, Eric, that was the that was the time I was like, I'm I'm heading for the hills here. This is getting really strange right now. So there's two things that came from that. First one was, do you remember the there was the the, the member of the religious order? He'd spent like 50 years down there in the Amazon, and people were shocked, like all sides of the church, when the guy said that he never baptized anybody. Yeah, unbelievable. I, I remember just being just floored. Like, what? what is going on here? It's like a guy who's worked at a company as a salesman for 50 years and never made one sale. Right? I mean, unbelievable. Like, the, yeah, it's the, the guy in the, in the cubicle in the corner nobody <laughs> he kind of forgot about. Like, right, right. Just real shocking, right? And then, of course, uh, the, the Pachamama idol. That was jarring to see something like that. Um, especially in, inside the Vatican, in our, our beautiful cathedral, um, or Saint, well, uh, it was the basilica uh, that this uh, this ugly idol was being paraded around and, and prayed to. My goodness gracious, 
that was really bad, Eric. And I think that uh, to put it to to put it mildly, and I I think that the church we haven't really come to grips with how serious that was. Does that make sense to you, Eric? Like, it seems Absolutely. like we kind of swept that away a little bit. But I think a lot of what we're seeing now, even over the last three years with this crazy virus, I don't want to say that that's it's directly you know linked to that, but boy, there's there's some things pointing in that direction. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, I wrote an article that did directly like it, <laughs> so I, I was willing to say it. But I said it as a, right. like this is my personal opinion. I would never, sure. of course, say this is something Catholics must believe. Yeah, I think yeah. a few things. This actually brings up a topic dear to my heart. A, a number of years ago, I wrote a, a high school textbook on ecumenism and interreligious dialogue. And so I, 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 I'm very knowledgeable about that area. Um, I mean, and yet my last book, as you mentioned, Deadly Indifference, is basically against ecumenism and interreligious dialogue, because I came to, this was an evolution in my own thought, where I came to see that how modern ecumenism and interreligious dialogue is done is fundamentally flawed and is causing more people to leave the church than enter it. And just to make sure the listeners understand what we're talking about, ecumenism is basically the Catholic Church, how it interacts and deals with with uh, non-Catholic Christians, so Protestants and Orthodox, whereas interreligious dialogue is how the church interacts and deals with uh, uh, non-Christians, so Muslims, Jews, atheists, pagans, whatever. And so the general sense since the 1960s has been the emphasis is on dialogue, that we talk about what we have in common, and that's basically all we do is we just kind of dialogue, and there's no real purpose to it. Like you'll see a few church documents that might say some a little bit more than that, not any more that much, but it's all about dialogue. We just basically meet, we talk about what we agree on, we might every once in a while talk about what we disagree on, and then we have a cocktail party afterwards, and that's it. And so I've really come to realize how terrible that is because what it, it does a few things. The, the main thing it does, and thus the, the title of my book, Deadly Indifference, is it fosters a religious indifferentism where we don't really think it matters what faith you are. Like I am much more comfortable talking to a Protestant who's hardcore and thinks I'm going to hell for being a Catholic than I am some uh, Episcopal priest who doesn't even care one way or another what religion you are. Because that guy who's the Protestant, he really believes what he believes, and he th- might think I'm going to hell, and I can talk to him about it, though, because he's passionate. He cares about my soul. He thinks it matters what religion you are. That's somebody I can have an actual dialogue with uh, that leads somewhere. That's the problem is most ecumenism and religious dialogue doesn't lead anywhere. And so what happened is over time, over the decades, since it started in the 1960s, it just got worse and worse and worse, where we became more and more accepting. And I think this is an area where I cri- I would be critical of Pope John Paul II. I think he did some things during his pontificate that sent the signal. Like, I don't think he was an indifferentist. I think he personally did believe, you know, the Catholic Church was one true faith and, and, what, and people should become Catholic. But he made some public actions that I think sent a message that it doesn't really matter what faith you are, that they're all basically equal. And so this continued, to, and Pope Benedict did, did as well. And so I, I think what happened was you see this growing movement among Catholic leaders that we have to be as accepting as possible of other faiths. We have to be accepting of other religions, stuff like that. And I think it reached its pinnacle with Pachamama, that you literally have a pagan idol that's paraded around. They tried to act like first like it's some Catholic thing, but then they basically mm-hmm. acknowledged, no, it's not. It's a pagan idol that they paraded around the Vatican. Now, anybody who's read the Old Testament <laughs> knows this is exactly the things that led to the downfall of Israel. This is exactly what led to the Babylonian captivity, to, to all the problems. I mean, when you read, for example, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, what you read is if the king... Uh, fell into idolatry, the nation had lots and lots of problems. And so when you have literally the Vatican falling into idolatry, and I really do believe they did, like I think, like for example, not everybody there was thinking, I worship this 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 uh, this idol, this ugly-looking idol. I don't think that, but I do think their actions were basically idolatrous. Um, just like I, it's not necessarily true that everybody at the golden calf thought it was actually a God. They might've just been like, Hey, this might help us or something. So I think it was a radical thing. And I think you're absolutely right that I think this has far reaching consequences. And my personal opinion is the church will never get back on track until there is a public repentance over that, where a Pope Mm. 
and the bishops get together and they have a public repentance to say what was what happened there was wrong and we condemn it and we beg God's uh, forgiveness and mercy for it. I think that when that happens, I think we can get uh, going back on the right track again. But until that happens, I don't see how how, how we we get back on the right track. And what might be worst of all, Eric, is that uh, maybe there were people that uh, that were totally against the, the Pachamama uh, being uh, paraded around the, the Vatican there, but they just went along with what everybody else was doing. Right. You know, they see the, the example of, of Pope Francis, of the Cardinals, and say, uh, I'm just going to do what these guys are doing just so that I don't, you know, uh, raise the ire of anybody because I'm not following the crowd. Boy, that's that's probably the worst. I yeah. would say, you know, like it's, and, and it's, it's what we've seen here with this, the time of the virus, you know, we, we follow along with what everybody else is doing because we don't want to stand out, even if it is the truth. Right. Uh, I want to talk very quickly because, you know, I hate to keep pointing to the German bishops, but I mean, it is what it is. The truth is the truth. They've got their fingerprints all over this. Um, you know, going back to Morris Letitia, they, they constantly cite that work, don't they, Eric? They're always going to that. That's their go-to. They were had a big part of this Amazonian synod. They also have a big part of this synod on synodality as well. Um, I'll have full disclosure if people know me. I I was uh, I volunteered to help out my parish. I wanted to see what was going on with these listening sessions, Eric. So we did have some at our local parish, and um, and now I look back and now that what I'm seeing, you know, even some of the documents that are coming from the Vatican, they have a, a website dedicated just to the synod. Uh, some of the artwork, some of the you know, the messaging that's coming out. I I just wanted, even publicly right now, just say, I'm distancing myself. I disown any involvement I had with this. This seems like a, a total sham. Uh, I think in North America, what is there, 1% of Catholics responded to these surveys? And uh, I don't know. Eric, do, do we take this thing seriously? Uh, it seems like we've got people at the top that are taking it seriously, but uh, where do you think this is all going to end up going? I guess we won't find out for sure probably until next year now. But uh, yeah, your thoughts on uh, the Synod on Synodality? I mean, I think we take it seriously only because they take it seriously. I think it is a sham. That's yeah. a perfect word for it. Because uh, first of all, the church actually has a long history of using synods. If you look at the early church, there's lots of councils and synods that get bishops get together, uh, local ones, uh, regional ones, uh, universal ones. And so the idea of bishops get, gathering together uh, to work out different issues of discipline or even doctrine is a very Catholic thing, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is what they do is they've taken the word synodality, which or synods, which is a legitimate thing, and they've used that in order to uh, promote what they're doing, which is really a top-down, let's shove what we think down on the church. Because these things are just a joke because what happens is is when the, the synods get together, they have a predetermined this is what first of all, they don't even invite all the bishops. They only invite the ones that they know will support them. They might invite one or two that might be a little opposing to give it the 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 sham, you know, the the, the charade that yes, we're 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 debating this. But they invite the bishops that are going to go along. And then they they know exactly what they're going to say ahead of time, and then they say it. And so that's not synodality. Synodality is you bring bishops in and you have a real debate. And here's the other thing about synodality. Synodality never debates a defined doctrine. The synods are, the purpose of them are to, first of all, impose disciplines like, okay, how do we actually manage practically uh, various aspects of the church and, and things like that? Um, and, but and also might try to come closer to defining an undefined doctrine. Like, we're not sure about, like, what do we think about this or that? Let's define it more clearly. But a defined doctrine, synods don't get together for that because there's no reason to. They've already gotten together in the past in councils or synods. It's already been defined. There's no debate anymore to happen. So really what this is, this is the Vatican. And, you know, Pope Francis is running this, but a lot of the, just the Vatican machinery is saying, okay, here's what we want to happen. How do we make this happen in the church in a way that gives us a little bit of cover? So we're not just, because if we just slammed it down everybody's throats, we probably would get a, a lot of problems. So let's make it look like, oh, this is the voice of the church. These are the people. The bishops are just following what the people want. And first of all, that itself is a falsehood because the people don't determine what the church believes. The Holy Spirit does, and it's mm. through the Pope and the bishops. Yes, the people have a certain, like the census fidelium, it's called, the sense of the faithful. And right. But what people don't understand is since the faithful, census fidelium, that's over 2,000 years. So just because most Catholics in America in 2023 
think something heretical. That doesn't make that doctrine. You have to expand it to the whole church over the whole 2,000 years, because I guarantee you what the average Catholic thinks in 2023, American Catholic or Canadian Catholic, is completely against what, for example, the average Catholic in 13th century England or 5th century Italy would have thought. And so you have to take the whole, like, like Chesterton says, tradition is democracy for the dead. It takes the mm -hmm. whole uh, census fidelium, not just a, a snapshot from one area, like or Germany, which is, would even be worse. So I do think the whole thing's a sham. I do, I do think it's worth, frankly, mockery. Uh, mm -hmm. I only take it seriously because I do think it will cause a lot of damage and harm a lot of souls. Mm -hmm. And for that, we have to at least oppose it and explain how synodality actually works and what the church really teaches. I think before sharing things in these uh, these sessions, too, I think everybody had to be in a state of grace. And I don't think anybody was or hardly anybody was. Right. Or, or <laughs> they even cared. Does that make sense? Or they yeah. even cared, right? So, you know, that, that should have been the the idea they should have flashed when they came in was, uh, are you living in a state of grace? I don't know if there's a card for that, but there there should have been, right. I think. I want to go back to that podcast that you released yesterday because it ties into the seriousness that we need to um, to take our faith in our relationship with Christ and walking in a right relationship with him. The last three years, we've seen a real catastrophic uh, decline in attendance. And not only that, but a decline in the real presence of the Eucharist. There's even surveys out. I don't know if you've read them, Eric, but even the people that are coming to church on a Sunday, it's up to 70% of them don't even believe in the real presence of Christ. That's right. It's really amazing. It's probably an act of grace, of great grace by God that these people are still coming to Mass. Because why in the world would you come to Mass if you don't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist? Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. It begs the question, right? Um, the the last couple of years, and of course here in Canada, we, we have it's it's really been a shame what's happened here in Canada. I know in the United States you guys have had your your issues too, but uh, you know we've even had at least one diocese where they're asking for a, a passport, a, a Vax passport, to come to Mass. That is absolutely insane. And the fact that none of the bishops here in Canada stood up and said, this is ridiculous, guys. You can't do this. We can't do this to the faithful. We can't shut down the churches and certainly can't have some sort of a identification to show up to, uh, to mass and partic participate in, the, in the, the sacraments. And now as time goes on, Eric, we're starting to see that the, this narrative, this, this COVID narrative is exploded. It's on fire. The wheels have fallen off. It's gone. And yet there's still people in our church, Eric, that are defending narratives instead of defending people. Isn't that just shocking in itself? You know? And uh, anyways, yeah, your thoughts. I could go on. <laughs> yeah, I think COVID in a lot of ways, it was the great revealer. Uh, so for example, our our trust in our elites and the experts, I mean, everybody, that's always how an argument could be ended. You say the experts say. And what COVID did revealed that that is a, a false way to argue for something. And most of our experts and elites, frankly, don't know anything. But in the church, it also revealed the state. It revealed the state of church. I have a friend who said that he thought in one way that the, what happened with COVID was, and, he, and he's talking about everybody leaving the church after it, was a great thing because it, it made explicit what was already the reality implicitly. And that, and I have, uh, I mentioned on the podcast, I have uh, somebody close to me and he, he was not happy being Catholic before. And he was kind of angry after mass. He didn't really like it for various reasons. And so after the lockdowns happened, he didn't go to mass for two months. And the bishop said, okay, come back. He said, why? He thought to himself, why, why should I come back? And he didn't. So he hasn't been to mass since mm. before the lockdowns. And now what that did was that re it wasn't the, the lockdowns themselves it wasn't like he was a practicing faithful Catholic before, and then after the lockdowns, he was gone. That's not what happened. What happened was that a lot of people who were on the peripheries, as our Pope would say, basically they, they didn't have a strong connection to the church. It was more of a weak connection. It broke that connection. And but this was this revealed the reality that was that was already there. It also revealed the re reality of the poor leadership we have in the church today. Not one bishop in America, and I'm pretty sure not one bishop in Canada, stood up to uh, the lockdowns. Remember, the, 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 the phrase that was used was non-essential services were, were, were the only thing, were, were eliminated, only essential services. And all the bishops jumped on board and said, okay, that means no mass. 
I mean, that's what people hear. That's what you're at. So you're Catholic who is already a bit, uh, have a weak connection to the church. We'll say when they hear like going to mass is a non-essential is a non-essential service, which is basically what the bishops literally said, then they're going to be like, why bother? And so they end up leaving the church. In fact, in, in America, preliminary numbers show that about 5 million Catholics stopped going to mass regularly after, after COVID, since 2020, excuse me, now it might not have been, of course, immediately, but, but that's, I mean, that's a large segment as we can, and that those are all souls. Every single one of them is a soul that, that needs to be at mass because God loves them and wants them there. And so to me, what I've done a lot of study on the, the kind of the decline of the Catholic church in the past 50 years, I focus mostly on America, but I think I I know that's very similar numbers are in Canada, uh, United Kingdom, Australia, you know, basically these English speaking countries and, and the West really. And what we saw was there was a big drop after 1970, after the changes made all the changes in the church, particularly in the mass, then it leveled out for a while, big drop again, starting in 2000. And there's a lot of factors on that. I won't go into that here, but just a lot of abuse scandal, but also the rise of the internet, different things. But then now we're seeing another big drop in 2020. It's, it's my view that in, by 2030, the Catholic Church in America, Canada, some of these other Western countries will be radically smaller. I mean, I'm not saying just a little bit smaller, but but significantly. I mean, we see dioceses going bankrupt. San Diego just announced they're going bankrupt. I think in, in my diocese in Ohio, they did a radical reconfiguration where basically they're going to shut down. I think it's like 70% of the parishes eventually because, and actually it's a good move in my mind because you don't need all these parishes at this point because there's not enough Catholics and you don't have enough priests particularly. So I think that by 2030, which is only seven years from now, I think that the the size of, and scope and the influence of the church will be radically reduced and everything that the Vatican doing, frankly, just accelerates that. Um, and, and so my my only my and I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but my my so my hope is is that there is something to be said. And, and Joseph Ratzinger said this a long time ago, and others have said this, that if we build up a core that's very solid, believes the faith, really is radical for the faith, traditional in their faith, that core can then go out and evangel- re-evangelize the world. Because remember, it was a very small core that that initially evangelized it two thousand years ago. We don't need numbers; we need faith. And so, if we have a small number of people who have a radical faith, and yes, the culture will be attacking us, but that's what it was doing in the first century too. Then we can build and we can, and we can be reborn, resurrected is probably the best word, obviously, um, resurrected as a church. But I do think we have at least 10 to 20 years, if not of, of a real hard decline, then probably a while of just being kind of in a catacomb existence, maybe not, maybe persecuted, maybe not, but the point is being irrelevant, kind of like a, a Catholics in Japan right now, very small, not right. very influential. And then hopefully, though, from there, we can grow out and, and again, uh, reconquer the world. Hmm. And there's a lot of hope in that, right? And and I don't want our listeners to, to you know, um, leave this uh, this episode uh, being too too down on things. I mean, but it's important to point out what's going on. And sometimes it's nice to hear from other people. That's why these discussions are important, I think, Eric, is that you're not alone in your feeling that uh, things are just, they're not going very well right now. But right. to live a sacramental life, go to confession regularly, receive worthy Eucharist, uh, make those sacrifices. It all makes a big difference. Even one person can make a, a massive, massive difference living in a right relationship with Christ in our church. You know, just look at, uh, throughout history, and even today, we still have you know something like a these cloistered nuns. Uh, it's always inspirational to me. You know, we have some here in the diocese of Edmonton, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's inspirational. There's not a lot of them, but they they pray for the church constantly, yeah. all the time. That's all they do. Uh, they've been uh, they they've taken that step out of the world in their way and in their vocation to make a difference for all of us. And uh, I think that's beautiful. And we can all do that in our own way, in our own vocation. So. Eric, the time has flown by. I am so thankful for your time. Uh, we need you to come up to Canada and visit us. Maybe we'll do a barnstorming tour, take you snowshoeing, take you to some <laughs> hockey games. We'll do something. But uh, but thanks for all your, uh, your your great witness and tell our listeners how they can uh, reach out to you and, and learn a little bit more about Crisis Magazine. Yeah, so Crisis Magazine is, is just crisismagazine.com. Crisismagazine.com, that's where 
basically most stuff I do is there. I have my own personal website, ericsammons.com, where you can buy my books and things like that. But but really crisismagazine.com. And you'll see you know, links to our social media and things like that. Well, a big thanks again to Eric Sammons for joining us on this episode of the podcast for a timely discussion on where we've been in the last decade in the church and where we're heading. And of course, the answer, Jesus Christ. Always keep Jesus in front of you, whatever your vocation is in life, and make that decision on an everyday basis to love Jesus and to spread the good news, the gospel of joy to others. But we need to live that sacramental life, going to confession often, going to Mass as much as possible. Can we do a little bit more than that once every week, once every Sunday? Can we go during a weekday? Uh, Can we do it maybe three times a week? Can we pray the rosary every day? There's all these little things that we can do to grow in holiness and to be that example of love to others. Thanks for listening to the Catholic Canuck podcast, everyone. It's such a blessing. Love hearing from you. Drop me a line anytime. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And again, the podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And again, to us Catholics out there, we know what we got to do. Got to live life in a state of grace, right? It's not always easy going to confession, but the eternal ramifications of living in a state of grace. Can't put a price on that. So we've got to go to confession at least three times every year, every Advent, every Lent, and any time you're in a state of mortal sin. Don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless. We'll chat with you very soon.